Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Bradley, and welcome back into another episode of Let's Dive Deep. Today we are continuing our deep dive into the hit Netflix series Bridgerton, taking a look at the second episode of the first season entitled Shock and Delight, which is a great title for this episode. Two for two on the episode titles Bridgerton. Very well done. Before we get going, I just want to remind everyone that Let's Dive Deep contains adult content. You know, not as much sex in this episode as in the first one, but we have to deal with a pretty graphic birth. You know, there's birth happening in this video. There's also death in this this video, this episode. There's birth and death. A whole circle of life is in this episode. And if that's not adult enough for you, uh, I don't know what will be. So if you do not want to chat about adult content today, then I would recommend tuning out of the podcast now. Also, we will not be spoiling anything past this episode. So if you're coming in, you've watched Bridgerton up to episode two, but you haven't watched farther, do not worry. I don't know what's going to happen either. I'm not going to spoil anything past episode two. So you are in a safe space here, regardless of where you are on your Bridgerton watching journey on Netflix. I know a lot of people probably binged it and then started the podcast. So just keep in mind, I do not really know what's going to happen, but you might. So just keep that in mind as I chat about it. I'm only chatting about things as we know them up to the end of episode two. You can also now find us on Twitter at Let's Dive Deep. You know, after we finish the Bridgerton series, we will be taking a look at other TV shows and other movies, and those might have different podcast feeds when we get around to those. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you might you might want to just want to check in with us on Twitter, or you want to know what's coming next after Bridgerton at some point, at Let's Dive Deep is the Twitter handle. If you want to head over there and give that a follow, then you will be in the know about what's happening. You'll also get a notification every time the n- next episode of the podcast comes out. If you would like to let me know your thoughts on this episode of Bridgerton, feel free to email letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com. I'd love to read your guys' comments on this episode, but also if there's anything I find particularly interesting to bring up during the podcast, I will not hesitate to bring up your emails during the podcast. If you have something you think might be valuable and that you want me to talk about, feel free to send it to that email. And if I think that it's a good use of time on the podcast. We will chat about it. This is also a reminder that we are out on a whole bunch of different podcatchers, Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, all of them. So feel free to subscribe to the podcast so it gets automatically downloaded into your feed every time a new episode comes in. We're going to do the eight episodes of Bridgerton, and then we're going to do a kind of an end of season wrap. So that'll be episode nine. And a few top fives, like top five favorite character moments, just a few podcasts to kind of wind down and dissect the season. It's always fun to look look back on some of the things we thought we would happen uh, we thought would happen at the beginning of the show, but then didn't happen or some of the predictions we got right. So we'll do a few of those podcasts at the end. So feel free to subscribe to the feed to make sure you don't miss those. Otherwise, kick back, relax, grab a beverage maybe. I don't know what you're doing. Anyways, let's dive deep into episode two of season one of Bridgerton. As we mentioned before, this episode is the second episode of season one, and it is titled Shock and Delight. And what I love, I want to talk about these episode titles. I know this is something a lot of people just skip over. An episode title does a lot in terms of framing the show for you that people should pay more attention to, right? A good episode title doesn't spoil anything. You don't want the title to spoil anything, but you want it to frame the episode to give you a sense like going into it what to expect and what to look for. 
The title is Shock and Delight. You should be going into this not knowing what's going to happen, but just thinking, okay, things are going to be shocking, things are going to be delightful. Which characters are having something shocking happen to them? Which characters are having something delightful happen to them? Which characters are having both? And it's a cool framing to go into the episode with, and it helps you pick on the details of what they are trying to present to you. The people who make the show have an opinion of what you should notice. You should think this character's good. You should think this character's bad. They're trying to write things and create things in a way that make you feel a certain way and the episode titles are part of that i don't know if this show actually takes them seriously but i take them seriously so i thought it was worth mentioning at the top here this episode was written by janet lynn and directed by tom verica i don't know who either of these two people are but i do like mentioning the writers and the directors because they deserve the credit they get for the episode but also, it's cool to find patterns. We might find another episode later that's directed again by Tom Verica. I might be able to find certain patterns and certain ways he directs from this episode to the next one. Maybe Janet Lynn hops in for another writing credit later. We're just not sure. So it, right now, we're just kind of mentioning it, calling it out. But later, we might, through pattern recognition, may be able, may be able um, to put together some things we notice if Tom directs again or Janet writes again. After watching this episode, I had a really hard time scoring this one. After watching the premiere, I was pretty nailed at 7.3. Just knowing my scale, knowing myself, knowing what I watched, I was pretty into it. And this episode... It was generally better than the premiere. We're going to talk about what worked and what didn't. It was generally better than the premiere, I think, which I said would happen in the premiere episode. You know, we have a lot less exposition in this episode, and the exposition we get is more of a deep dive into specifically the Duke, and that's something I said I wanted in episode one to happen in episode two, and we got that, and I was overjoyed with that. Very, very well done to find creative ways to do the Duke's backstory, and that was great. Also, there were some things that just still didn't work for me in the episode two, so I'm going to give this one a 7.6. It's earned the three points better than the premiere episode. It's a great episode of television. You have to remember, seven is the benchmark. You can sit down, you can enjoy it, you're having fun, you want to sit down and podcast about it. I did really, really enjoy this episode, and so 7.6 is the rating I'm going to go with. Three points better than the premiere episode. In terms of what worked for me, everything to do with Simon's backstory with his dad I'm somebody who lost my dad at a young age. We don't need to get into details, but what it's done is it's made me a complete sucker for a dad story. A good one, a bad one, a tragic one, an amazing one, anyone, right? And the way they handle this backstory with Simon, not only are you getting his perspective of things, you're getting the way he grew up. How did Simon, how did the Simon, the Duke of Hastings that we are watching on our screens come to be that guy and you're getting a bit of that character depth which is really nice and I just really enjoyed everything to do with it the way it was acted the way it was written the way it was spliced throughout the episode the way they were done in kind of flashbacks the way they cut to and from the flashbacks everything to do with Simon's backstory was incredible and we will talk about it in detail in just a minute because I really loved it the whole side plot of the girls, Eloise and Penelope, trying to figure out how one can get pregnant without being married is truly one of the funniest things I've watched on TV in the last little while. Like, at its, it's played for high comedy, and it hits high comedy. It's so freaking funny. It does raise a lot of questions. I have so many questions about sex education in this time. Now, if you had asked me, like, hey, Brad, Regency-era social season London... What do you think the sex education like or is like for women? I would have said not very good at all. 
That is exactly what I would have said. But I wouldn't have suspected that the women who are out there in the world to have kids, to find a match, that is the whole purpose of this whole social season, I would not have expected them to have no idea how any of it works, right? How sex works, how pregnancy works, all like... They, like, Eloise interrupts at one point to say something along the lines of, apparently marriage isn't even a requirement. Like, she's shocked and betrayed and confused. And we're going to talk about that scene because the, the Colin and Benedict have a cool clap back to her and I really, I really enjoy it. But the whole side plot just worked for me so, so well. It's just, you have all the main stuff, you have all the main characters and what they're doing and what they're going through, and it's meant to be very serious, and they have Eloise and Penelope going around like, how did Marina get pregnant? And they have no idea, and I really, really like that. The last thing that really worked for me, not the only, these aren't the only three things that worked for me, but the last thing that really worked for me this episode is I genuinely enjoy the chemistry between Daphne and Simon. The acting, first of all, I really get the sense that they are going to get together. And I'm really buying into that, and you need that, because of course you know, at some point, it's not this episode, I have no idea, what, at some point in one of these episodes, they're going to be a unit, a package. I don't know how it's going to happen, or why it's going to happen, but everyone who watches the show, or looks at the marketing, or anything, knows we're going in that direction. So you have to make the journey fun and enjoyable, this is something I talked about in the first episode, and I... I'm falling into that relationship. I'm believing it. The acting is very good. They have genuine chemistry. The writing is very good. They get a good smattering of scenes, right? They have funny scenes and kind of, you know, scenes where they're being a little nervous and scenes where they're disagreeing with each other and scenes where they're negotiating with each other. And you're starting to get all these different scenes that they're they're pulling together to create this web of a relationship and it's really working for me because this is the emotional through line this is the heartbeat of the show is Daphne and Simon and their relationship and if that doesn't work nothing else around it is going to work except for the pregnancy side plot that would work in any show with these two characters like it's so funny but Daphne and Simon need to work and it is working, right? I'm not so invested that I think they're like the cutest, most romantic couple ever. Like that's not where I'm at. But in terms of within the show, I it's getting me to where I need to be to accept that whenever they get together for whatever reason, that I have been given enough along the way to believe that that's going to happen. And that's very, very important. There was only one thing in this episode that really didn't work for me. And it has an outsized influence on the score, I think, because it's the same thing that didn't work for me in episode one. And I really just, I, I need this to turn around at some point, and I'm hoping it turns around soon. You know, 7.6 is still great. I still had a good time. But Burbrook is just, my God, not it. Like, I just don't think he's threatening. There's not a single point in this episode where I was genuinely worried or genuinely scared for Daphne that she would end up with Burbrook. The actual individual scenes are really well done, right? I don't think Burbrook's a bad actor. I don't think he's poorly written. I think the way it's portrayed is really well done. I think it's just a, a literal threat problem. Right? This guy is not a duke. This guy's not as rich. This guy's not as handsome. This guy's not as smart. This guy's not as cunning. So why in the hell would Daphne ever end up with him? 
And they have a reason. They they create a reason in this show to make you feel that threat. But I just never felt it, right? Maybe you did watching it, and that's great. That's what they were going for, for sure. I just didn't. And because this is the second episode in the row that that's not working for me, and that they didn't really flesh it out, they didn't they didn't make me get there. So I got there with Daphne and Simon, and I got, I'm getting there with that relationship, but I'm just not quite getting there with the Burbrook thing. And that's okay. It's a minor complaint in what was otherwise a great episode of television, but it's enough that this pulls it down. I think if I was getting the Burbrook thing more, you'd have your first eight. You'd have your first 8.0 ever for Bridgerton given on Let's Dive Deep. I think that's where the rest of this episode is at, is at it, at, at the eight level. It's a great episode of TV, and I think the Burbrook plotline is just not emotionally working for me. Although the scenes are funny and well done, it's just not getting there for me. So we're bringing it down to a 7.6. The only other thing that I thought was off and strange, and I, I, did, I put this in the not working for me section just because I want to table it. Because it is working for me, but I just want to point out that I felt a little weird about it. And we'll see how this goes, and we'll see if it continues. But I remember in episode one me- mentioning the sex position in Game of Thrones. So they often use sex or would use sex to give you the exposition to kind of make it fun. In this show, you have box position, right? They have all these things they need to tell you, and they try and tell you it through Simon and this other guy. I don't know if we catch his name this episode. We must, and I just forgot to write it down. And that's my bad. I try my best to note down everything, right? But if I don't note it down, that means I didn't notice it, which is which is something I want to talk about, because if I don't notice it and I watch your show twice right? Maybe it's not being put out there enough. So we'll talk about that later, but I did not get the other friend's name, but the box position felt weird only because there is no way, there is zero chance that these two are boxing this, like, not violently, but this intensely and this frequently without gloves on and without any kind of proper medical professionals around and just not having massive concussions, right? Just the amount of force and directness and rapidity that Simon is being punched in the face just really threw me off. I was like, yo, this guy would be literally dead. Right? It's just a little too much for me. And it's not that it didn't work for me. It didn't take me out of the episode. But it's such a weird thing because it's so obvious that that shouldn't happen. Right? This is not a world with magic where Simon has like a metal skull because he's a superhero or something. (laughs) He should be flat knocked out. Especially because last episode, and I'm going to talk about this again later. Last episode, Daphne like one-punched Burbrook. And Daphne has no professional training and probably is not that strong compared to this super buff dude who's clearly a boxing professional. And he just keeps smashing Simon in the face over and over and over again. And it's almost as if Simon just doesn't care about it and it's just it just didn't click for me i'm not holding it against the show yet so we'll see how it goes maybe it leads somewhere maybe it'll make sense later but just the actual physical medical aspect of that was just really not clicking for me at all now that we've given it a score we've talked broadly what's what's working what's not working How do we feel about this episode? Let's dive in and do a plot analysis because so much of this episode is so funny that I can't wait to talk about it. So let's hop in and dive deep into the plot of the second episode of the first season of Bridgerton. We open this episode with a very dark and gloomy scene. It immediately, you immediately know that something bad's about to happen. This is a lively, bright, 
Um, exquisite show. And the whole time so far, we've been playing with like a broad, bright color palette. Things are happy. You know, there's gossip and there's bad things that are going to happen. But mostly it's a spectacle that you're watching. And now we're in, we're in some sort of castle, I guess, or some sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't, I can't think of the word word. I'm trying to think of a word for like a royalty, some sort of Royal residence is maybe the word I'm trying to look for. And we're there. And this maid is walking very quickly and she looks scared and she looks worried. And we enter this scene where we learn, we learn that it's Simon's mom. At the beginning, we don't know who it is. I think this is where you learn that the Duke's name is Simon. I think we got it once in episode one because I did notice it or I did know that. I remember saying the word Simon in episode one, so we must have got it somewhere in there. But we finally find out that his name is Simon uh, and his mom is giving birth to him. This is this is the start of the backstory of Simon. And I really loved just the, the complete reversal on how this show normally looks and feels. And it really brings you into the episode and really gives you a sense of the uh, the the tragedy that's about to happen in this scene. And it, it makes you take this scene seriously. You're so thrown off that you kind of have to dive into it and take it seriously, even though you don't know what's going to happen. And so I really enjoyed the cinematography, the lighting, the way it was shot, the way it was acted. All of that was very well done for this scene. And the dad, I guess the this at this point, the current Duke of Hastings, Simon's dad, is pacing outside in the hallway, and he's just he's just on a tangent. All he wants to know, is it a boy? Is it a boy? Is it a boy? Tell me. And Lady Danbury is there, and we still don't know kind of the relationship to Lady Danbury. We learn later that she is his mother's friend so he's she's not an aunt or anything but lady danbury is there i guess because she's simon's mother's friend sorry this is gonna get complicated when we talk about it right and the dad says something like no 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 you can't go in there that's no place for a woman which is like you know if any if any place is a place for a woman it's when women are giving birth like what the they've made that like that's a very (laughs) regency era take but that's fine and you get the sense that the dad does not care at all about his wife Right, He just wants to know if it's a boy. Did she give him a boy? That is all he wants to know. She gives birth. It looks painful. They do a good job of acting out birth on TV. I've never watched an actual birth or like been in the room, so I don't know if it's at all well portrayed, but it looks painful and terrible, and so I'm assuming it's, it's fairly well done. And Simon comes out. And there's two things happening at the same time. The dad takes it. It's a boy. Congratulations. And he names him. And I paused. Rewound and wrote this name down, because this is hilarious. Simon Arthur Henry, we're good. Simon Arthur Henry, Fitz Ranulph. Fitz, F-I-T-Z-R-A-N-U-L-P-H, Fitz Ranulph Bassett. That is so fucking cool. His name is Simon Arthur Henry Fitz Ranulph Bassett. Sweet. While that's happening, he's telling everyone, it's a boy, the next Duke of Hastings. Everyone else in the hallway is like, hooray. Also, Mr. Frickin' Simon's dad, Mr. Duke guy, the room is no place for a woman, but just outside in the hallway, like 10 feet from the door is totally fine. Makes no sense. The Duke of Hastings in this episode, the dad makes no sense. None of it makes sense in terms of that aspect. But while that's happening, while everyone's like, hooray, it's a boy, the next Duke of Hastings, the mother 
dies in childbirth and only Lady Danbury cares or notices or anything. The dad doesn't seem to care or notice or whatever. So he's off um, cheering with everyone else and the mother dies. And it's very, very, very sad. And you immediately understand the gravity of Simon's situation. You don't know any more details for now, but you immediately understand like, oh, we're going to learn about Simon this episode and it's not going to be great. So I like the way that they start the episode with that. And it gives a good, it just gives a good place for us to start on. It gives a good step for us to step onto to, to kind of take the rest of the episode into context because the rest of the episode happens with all these splices of similar scenes like this where we keep getting interrupted and, and Simon's backstory keeps getting interjected into it. And I think starting off with this scene is great. They did a very good job and it was very, very important to, to nail this one and they did. I also wanted to mention at the end of this scene, there's a smash cut where the frame doesn't really change, but it's the bed that the mother died in. And then it's a smash cut to the present time where Simon's looking at it and he's looking at it with like a little bit of longing and a little bit of despair. And he's just generally like staring at it as if he's lost in his own thoughts and everything's covered up. And it feels like nobody has touched this. Nobody's touched this room since it happened. Right, this has been 25 years. I don't know how old the Duke is meant to be. 20, 25, 30, I don't know. I think the actor's probably close to 30, but I don't know how old the character of the Duke is really meant to be. And nobody's touched this room since that happened. And I thought that was really sweet of Simon when the maid comes up to say, would you like the room rearranged? He's like, no, 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 leave it. It's fine. Like He doesn't want to touch this room. He wants to leave it exactly as it is because this is the place where his mother died. And I thought that was really poignant and nice and lovely. And it's little things like that. It's little details like that where him just saying, no, I'm going to look at this room. We're going to leave it the way it is. That adds so much to someone's character without taking a lot of time, without being very expensive. You know, every TV show runs on a budget, so you have to try and find low-budget ways sometimes to make things work. And it's like the Colin moment in episode one where he goes and dances with Penelope. A very low-effort, easy way to invest us into the character, and I really enjoyed that. We now learn a few things really quickly. Lady Whistledown, glad to have her back. The voiceover is so good. Julie Andrews is the perfect voice for Lady Whistledown. Lady Whistledown is in on the Daph, uh, or on the Daph, on Daphne and the Duke. No surprise there. Lady Whistledown is in on the gossip, and they are the hot thing to talk about. The Duke is sleeping around. The Duke is like Anthony in a way, although he owns it a little bit, and that's like, he doesn't have to get married or do anything, and he's not pretending to be all that and a bag of chips, all right? He is sleeping around. At first, I was like, oh my God, is this the same girl? I was really hoping it was the opera singer, and I was like, yo, this opera singer got shut down by Anthony and then just went and found a Duke like you go, girl. I was so in on the girl the Duke was sleeping with being the opera singer, but it wasn't. As far as I could tell, we didn't get a name or anything in the subtitles. I Just by looking, and it was a, it was a fairly... It was a fairly poorly lit shot not poorly as if it was badly done it was a fairly dim shot on her end of the frame so I couldn't tell but as far as I know it's not the same woman although I was really hoping it would be the Duke is very grumpy about having to go and promenade with Daphne or Daphne I would like to remind the Duke at this point that this whole thing was his idea the whole ruse thing was something he brought up to Daphne it happens to work for both of them but he did mention it first so get your ass out of bed and go and promenade also is promenading just walking is that all that is throw this whole episode I wrote it down like six times like 
can I go and promenade with Eloise? It's like, is that just walking around? I don't know. I, I assume promenading is just walking around. And then we have this cool scene of the queen getting pampered. She's in the bath. She's reading Lady Whistledown. And just the, the joy. Imagine you're just sitting in the bath. You have like 100,000 servants. And they're all there to make you feel as nice as possible. And this is a cool kickstart for some of the pampering we see later when the queen has Lady Bridgerton over for tea. And there's people that are freaking doing acrobatics in her presence and stuff so you just get a good sense that the queen is someone who enjoys being pampered and doesn't or isn't afraid to make use of her station to get the pampering that she wants and honestly it looked very comfortable and very nice and very lovely and i was quite jealous as someone who enjoys the occasional bath to relax that looked perfect much to the Duke's despair, we, we now move to the aforementioned uh, promenade that the Duke was not looking forward to. Lady Danbury is there with Miss Bridgerton, and she is laying down the scope of being a duchess. You know, uh, Daphne is going to have to tend to the house, and she's going to have to be the duchess, and she's going to have to host balls. And Lady Bridgerton is like, oh, don't even worry. I have raised her so well. She's the reverse Anthony. She's like cocky, but actually does a good job. And so... She is loving it for her daughter, and that's great. Uh, Lady Danbury mentions that the Duke doesn't smile, and he's smiling with Daphne. And this is the part where you get the sense that it's it's part of the act, but also genuine. And this is where it really starts bringing me in to this relationship. On this promenade, Daphne and the Duke are negotiating their ruse and this is so funny and so cute and just very adorable they're going back and forth like well it's mostly Daphne that's doing the negotiating at Simon it's not really a mutual negotiation which again is strange because this was Simon's idea Simon brought this up to unless I'm completely misremembering the first episode Simon first was the one to bring this up so I don't know why he's the one who's trying to negotiate out of it but whatever and she goes like I need you at three balls and he's like or she's like I need you at five and he's like three six four and it just goes back and forth and they're negotiating all these things and my favorite moment because it comes full circle later is that she tells him to buy expensive flowers and he just has this face like fuck really after all this, I got to do all this shit and now I got to buy you expensive flowers right now, this morning. Like they have to arrive now. Like this is ridiculous. So I liked how this negotiation was going on and Daphne just has all these things she needs. And the Duke was just begrudgingly like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And it really got the sense like, yes, anything to get you to stop talking at me right now would be perfect. So that was just really funny and really cute. At some point, the Duke also goes, if... I really wanted to impress you. I would only need five minutes alone in a drawing room, which is clearly a uh, allusion to his sexual prowess. But I was like, this is the first, this is before the pregnancy stuff happens. But I, I thought, and I wrote down, does Daphne know what that means? She has this face of complete, just she's completely perplexed. And she just moves on like she doesn't acknowledge the comment because on the face of it, it's very, very rude. It's a very rude thing to say. And I don't think Daphne gets the context or the subtext or any text or any of it. And I think I'm just not sure how to feel about Daphne's knowledge of sarcasm or knowledge of sex or whatever. But I don't think she got the joke. And, and that was um, it was just alarming to me that she has no idea what he's talking about. And... The Duke is also in this scene very, very cool about the scene where Daphne punches Burbrook from the first episode. He's generally, like, pretty supportive. Like, yeah, he deserved it. Good job. I would have punched him too type of thing. And I thought that was really nice of him to 
kind of back her up because I assume not many people in this universe would back up a lady being alone with a dude on a walk and then punching him in the face. And I was glad the Duke, as a supporter of Daphne, genuinely was happy for her. And this wasn't part of the ruse or anything. Genuinely thought that she did a great job and that she is worthy of more than Burbrook. And I think that's nice for him. The Featheringtons next grace our scenes, and this scene is not very important at all. Marina's pregnancy is causing all kind of issues. The daughters are curious about it. But the only note I took for this whole scene was the dad. And this is the dad that I'm hoping is Lady Whistledown, so I really, really hope that it comes to be. Because he's just sitting there flipping through his paper, and all the girls are freaking out. And Mama Featherington's like, oh my god, whatever shall we do? And he's like... There is no need for your hysterics. Like, shut up. I'm trying to read the paper. Like, he wants nothing to do with any of this, but in a very different way that Eloise wants nothing to do with any of this. And I just thought it was very, very funny. And almost like, this is totally me if I'm in that time. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Whatever are we going to do? Yep. Who cares? Can I read my paper? Like, it was very, very funny. Um, just the nonchalance and the aloofness that this guy has, and I really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> I just hope this character continues to do that. We don't need to know a lot about him. I don't need him to be a present part of the show. I'm hoping it's just, like, small parts and small scenes like this where he just genuinely doesn't care about what's happening and just wants to read the paper. And, like, the, there's no need for your hysterics. Like, she wasn't even being hysterical. She was genuinely bringing up a problem that this family might have. And he was like, yeah, shut up. I'm reading. And I I just thought that was a very, very funny scene. The Eloise and Penelope friendship continues. They are walking or promenading. Isn't a promenade if it's in front of people? Because this is just like, they're just walking around the streets of London or Grosvenor Square or wherever they are. So I don't know if this is different than promenading. I have no idea. Anyways, Eloise and Penelope are talking about Daphne. Eloise is not that happy with Daphne and just not interested in the situation. Not that I think she's particularly angry at Daphne the person, but she she says having nice face and pretty hair isn't an accompli- isn't an accomplishment, which I think is a great line. Tells you a lot about Eloise's character. It's very very funny and it's it's just very well done. And then they talk about how Marina is pregnant. And this is the point where they're like oh my God, or where you're like, oh my God, they have no idea. They both think you have to be married to be pregnant. Like one is a condition of the other. You cannot possibly get pregnant unless you are married. (laughs) And then of all things, I think they come up with this idea that it's somehow contagious or something. And it might be Eloise, it might be Penelope. I can't remember. But one of them says something like, we Oh, it's Eloise. We should find out how to do this so we can make sure it doesn't happen to us. We have accomplishments to acquire. It's just, it's so funny that this friendship is continuing. Eloise doesn't like what Daphne is doing. Penelope doesn't really want anything to do with it either. And they both have no idea how to get pregnant. They somehow think it might be contagious and that they must know how it happens so they can stop it from happening because they have accomplishments to acquire. And I think that's fantastic. Also, preach, Eloise. You've got things to do. You've got accomplishments to acquire. Don't let this world drag you down. I support you in this mission. Eloise continues this conversation she had with Penelope about being pregnant by interrupting the family in, like, I'm going to call it the caller room. I don't know what kind of room this is in a household like this, but this is the room where all the callers come into. It's the same room. I'm assuming they probably had one room on set to just do most of the house stuff in. And so it's just the room. We're just in the normal room in the Bridgerton house. And Eloise interrupts and... (laughs) 
and wants to know how someone can be with child. Apparently marriage isn't a requirement. She's shocked and like almost sad and dejected that she hasn't been told how this could happen so she could stop it, which is very, very good. And the boys, Colin and Benedict, are hilarious in this scene. They, they say, have you ever been to a farm? That's Colin that says, have you ever been to a farm? Benedict, like holding back laughter, hits him with a paper, which is funny. And then Colin continues, despite Lady Bridgerton popping, or popping in, chiming in that they shouldn't be having inappropriate conversations. And I'd like to point out here, like, this is a problem. This is not an inappropriate conversation. These people should know how this works because they are, they're like... For the reasons that Eloise is trying to find out. If they... I don't even really know what I'm trying to say. They need to know this. A good sex education is important. And Eloise needs to know how this works. Daphne needs to know how this works. Penelope needs to know how this works. And it's wild that even Lady Bridgerton, who we are... We are meant to believe is like a nice kind caring person who will tell her like who cares about her kids who will give them the information they need to succeed later in this episode she goes through a whole bunch of effort just to get burbrook off the scene but she just won't tell her kids how sex works also like why don't the boys just tell the girls the boys clearly know it's weird anyways uh, Lady Bridgerton interrupts. Benedict hits, hits Colin with the paper, despite also trying not to laugh himself. And then <laughs> Colin again goes, uh, we're going to go take our sticks out. Lady Bridgerton again chastises them. And then Colin goes, around a fencing? Oh my god, the whole scene was funny. I loved everything to do with it. I laughed out loud by myself. I'm laughing talking about it. I laughed out loud at my screen watching it, which is exactly where this show wants me. Just these little bits of comedy that, again, tell you a lot about the characters. It's important we know that the women in this world don't know about sex. It's important that we know that. But to do it in such a funny way is an achievement, and I really, really appreciate it. And at the end, there's a point where you start to get the sense by the way Lady Bridgerton is talking to Daphne. You know, Daphne didn't really have much to do with the pregnancy conversation. She was just looking on. I can take from this that she doesn't really know what pregnancy or how to be pregnant or what sex is really either. That's what I'm going to take from this conversation. But you can tell that Lady Bridgerton is just super in on the Duke and Daphne. And you're, you might start to think like, oh my God, is the ruse going a little too well? If this ruse goes too well, it'll almost be an expectation that they're the ones to actually get married when they're both trying to do it for different reasons. And as far as Daphne's concerned, she's trying to get married to somebody else. So you get to the point here where you start thinking like, "Uh oh, is the ruse going to go a little too well? And we don't know yet. I have no idea. But that's where my mind went in this scene, where I started to think the thing, the, the ruse might be going in a direction where it's almost working to a point that even the Duke and Daphne don't want it to work too. After all the hilarity of going to farms and taking sticks out and Eloise just not understanding, we move to Anthony and Lord Burbrook arriving at the Bridgerton house and being very, very upset that there seemed to be a lot of callers there for Daphne, which means the promenading, the ruse, the expensive flowers. We have the we have the expensive uh, flowers callback from like two scenes ago. The Duke actually bought them and delivered them, which is amazing. Go, Duke. You rule. They are both really pissed off that all these callers are here because according to Anthony and Burbrook, they have this understanding that Burbrook is going to marry Daphne. 
in a midst of anger, in a throw of anger, Anthony throws his hat at the butler, which is ridiculous. It may be, it's like a placement, kind of like a toss, but the butler just drops it, and it's very, very funny, <laughs> and the butler just keeps walking, which I said out loud, good for you, butler. Don't let Anthony throw his hat at you anymore. Anthony tries to explain to Burbrook, hey, this is all a misunderstanding. I'm so sorry. This is still on. I'm the man of the house. My word, my word, my word rules here. You're still going to marry Daphne. You're going to have to go though. And I have to get all these people out so I can figure this out with my family because there's something that they're not quite understanding. Burbrook, obviously pissed about the situation, says that he wore his best satin knee breeches for the occasion. I don't know what satin knee breeches are. I don't even know what knee breeches are. I hardly know what satin is, if I'm being honest. And you get the sense that Burbrook had dressed <laughs> had dressed nicely for the occasion, but that satin knee breeches just don't impress the Bridgertons or something. So I just thought that was a fun touch that, that Burbrook's really trying hard here because he's an asshole to at least look nice. The Duke, like I said earlier, sent the flowers, which is great. After everyone leaves, Mama Bridgerton accosts Anthony for ruining a perfectly good morning. Daphne is pissed off as well. Anthony tells Daphne that he should be appreciative about the Burbrook thing, which is ridiculous. Like, Anthony, 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 how do you look at Burbrook? How are you looking at Burbrook? Who told the Duke or who tells the Duke that he doesn't have the money or the status or whatever, and that he needs that from Daphne. How do you look at someone like that and go, yeah, this is the best pick for uh, Daphne? This whole scene was great. It was funny. It fleshed out the characters a little bit. I'm more than happy to have another scene where Burbrook is on the wrong end of it. But at the same time, I'm just not vibing with Anthony. Not in a way that takes away from the show, just his character. His character is well-written, but he's a well-written jerk. And I just am not... Oh, he's so frustrating. Box Position is next. And I don't have much to say about Box Position. I didn't really like it. Although the things we do learn are cool. I put in my notes, there's no way these guys don't have fat concussions all the time. Anthony hopping into box is very, very funny. It's almost as if the Duke will only talk to you in this building is if you're punching him in the face or if he's punching you in the face, which I like as a requirement for Anthony to have to talk to the Duke. At first, the boxing guy is a bit weird or is like asking about Daphne. And that's super cool. And the Duke is kind of playing it off as if it's a necessary thing, I think. I can't remember this scene specifically in my head right now, but I think the Duke's kind of playing it off like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm dancing with the Bridgerton girl. Yeah, cool. Anthony shows up and is like, you can't date her. She's my sister. I've made an arrangement with Lord Burbrook, to which Simon is not happy. And Anthony states again that he's looked into Burbrook. And I don't, somebody... It happens later in this episode, but at this point in all of the first episodes, like somebody needs to talk to Anthony about this because how do you look into anybody? And he says things like, at least I know he was in London. And I'm going, London's a big fucking place, Anthony. You can do a lot of bad things in London and not have the other people in London know about them, especially in the Regency period. I don't know how Anthony, maybe he's doing a good job and the system sucks. Maybe he's using the proper system of looking into people and how it's normally done. Done. My guess is it's all done based on hearsay and gossip, a la Lady Whistledown. But I still, like, Anthony, you are doing a bad job of looking into Burbrook. He sucks. Stop 
It, oh, it's so frustrating. And then I put the Duke is a bad boy. In addition to his sexiness, I'm I'm in on this character. There's just he's just a bad boy. He drinks out of a flask and he's boxing and he's dancing with the Bridgertons and he doesn't care if Anthony's mad about it. And I I enjoyed that. Splicing back into the flashbacks we get of the Duke's time, I put before I knew what was going to happen, and this is really sad, he was talking and I put, oh, it's so cute that he has a stutter. The, the child actor who portrays this does a very good job with the stutter or the stammer, I think they call it in this episode. He does a really good job of making that part of the character and acting that in a way that feels very genuine. Papa Duke guy is just being a dick, but he's giving us the exposition we need. You know, he's he's getting very mad at his son saying, you know, he better be fucking Shakespeare if he can't speak. He's angry. He wants his son to be extraordinary is the word he uses. And he he's yelling this at a child. So I think that like this is this is a little bit clunky in this scene because he's just saying this to a kid. What he's really saying He's giving the information to us. He's not giving the information to the Duke. He's He might as well just look to camera and be like, we only get to keep this line if we're extraordinary. It was given to us. It can be taken away from us. He gives you the exposition you need to know about how they came into the Duke ship, I guess, or that it can be taken away, or that... If Simon does become the Duke, he has to be extraordinary or he can no longer be the Duke. I'm not exactly sure how it works. I'm assuming it's just based on like a royalty thing where you can be made a Duke and you can have that taken away. And it's just as simple as that. And so he's giving us the exposition that you must be extraordinary to keep the line. And he is terrified and worried and for whatever reason, a complete dickhead about it. But he's not happy that his son does not seem to be as extraordinary as he will need to. We then head to Marina's room where Penelope is the only person that cares about Marina. This scene is very nice. Penelope taking from Colin in the last episode being kind to her is paying it forward and it's seemingly the only one who cares about or is visiting Marina. She is there partly to be kind, I genuinely think, but also to get information about how Marina became pregnant because this is, they are doing a better job trying to figure this out than Anthony did of researching Lord Burbrook. He should talk to Eloise and Penelope about sleuthing because he sucks at it. And <laughs> they're eating cake and while, while Penelope has a piece of cake in her mouth and asks how you become pregnant if you're not married... <laughs> Marina says, cake? And Penelope almost chokes on it. And it's so funny, but they talk a little bit more. We find out that Marina was actually in love and that it was made from love. We don't get any more. So Penelope still leaves having no idea, but then said it was love. And later, later talks to Eloise and goes like, my mom does not love my dad. So it must, there must be more to it than love. So love is a good start, but it's not quite there. But the cake line, literally, if I had had water in my mouth, I might have spit it out. Like I said, this episode is so funny and it's so charming and I really like moments like this because they just take all the stress away and they make you feel so good that you're sitting down to binge this show. It's so funny. We get a little bit more with the queen here. There's not too much. I, I put down, she's obviously super into Whistledown. She's not very into her husband. Someone comes in to talk about her husband's condition. I'm assuming that's the king. I think they probably say like the royal physician is here to talk about the king's condition. And she says something along the lines of, is he dead? No, good, whatever. Or is he dead? No, then what, what would he possibly have to tell me? So you get the sense that the king is not in good shape. 
and that she must be entertained. She's into the gossip. She must be entertained. And this is done through the frame, sometimes literally like through the person, the, the flexible dancer person who's in front of the queen. So not much going on in this scene here. Just a little bit of backstory on the queen. You get a little tidbit about the king, which we'll, we'll keep in our noggins until that comes up again, because I'm sure it will. I had never thought about it till this moment, but where is the king? Surely the king exists. Like, that is an actual question that I have now that this is mentioned. So I suppose we'll find out later. Daphne and the gang are at the Bridgerton house preparing for the next ball. Daphne is very in on finding more suitors than the duke because of the ruse. She knows she's not going to marry the duke, that she's going to marry other people. So she wants to wear rubies or something because they'll attract more suitors or whatever. And Mama Bridgerton has no idea why she would want to do that because whatever. Eloise is just hanging out. Right, this I found I found this was weird that Eloise, who wants nothing to do with this, is just choosing to sit there and watch Daphne get dressed up for a ball. I don't know why she doesn't just leave, but cool. Mama Bridgerton not just doesn't get that it's a ruse, doesn't know that it's a ruse, doesn't understand why Daphne would be looking for so many other suitors when the Duke is obviously the best possible suitor and seems genuinely into her. And then an invitation comes from the Queen. In the last scene with the Queen, she asked for her parchment. This is the letter that was written on that parchment. And Mama Bridgerton is invited to go see the Queen for lunch. For tea. They call it tea. Is that lunch or is that dinner? My British friends in real life call dinner tea. But I get the sense in the show that it happens in the afternoon. Right? Like, more around lunchtime. Someone let me know if tea in Regency era is like lunchtime tea or dinnertime tea. Now that the Bridgertons are prepped for the ball, it is time to go back and get a little more backstory on the Duke with Lady Danbury. She has found a hidden Simon the King after being disappointed with Simon and his stammer and wants nothing to do with him, has moved him off. You get the sense to a place that he he knows about, but he doesn't really care about and that no one knows if the kid's alive, where he is, what he's doing, why he's not in school and this child actor is killing it there's a lot to this scene we get the background about lady danbury coming in realizing that simon has a stammer this is the point where she says that she was a friend of simon's mother and that she wouldn't think fondly of her if she didn't come check in on him she says that she had some sort of issue as well i don't get the sense that it was a stammer i, I say get the sense a lot i hope that doesn't get annoying but I noticed it now, so I must be doing it a lot. Anyways, um, maybe it wasn't to stammer. Maybe it was something else. But she sharpened, she says she sharpened her wit, her wardrobe, and her eye. I'm not sure really what that means, the eye part of it. But she sharpened her wit, her wardrobe, and she was determined to be the most terrifying woman in any room. And she is going to help Simon deal with this problem I put, in all caps, what a fucking legend. Lady Danbury coming in hot to be the absolute hero that Simon needs. And from Simon's perspective, this must be a huge deal. Surely he's lonely and tired. And he knows him having a stutter and a stammer and not being able to speak. At the very least, he's a young kid, but he must know it's not normal. It's not considered smart. I think the dad at some point says, wow, he's an imbecile. So he get he knows and he understands everything else. He just has the stutter. And we know from the Duke that we see on screen in the future that he's a very smart and cunning person, right? So we know he gets over this. But this must be very emotionally taxing and damaging 
for young Simon and to have Lady Danbury come in and care about him and just say, like, I don't give a shit about anything else. I'm going to help you overcome this problem you have so that you can fulfill the destiny you're meant to have as the Duke is just amazing. And I really loved I just loved it because it gives so much more context to Lady Danbury, who in real life up until this point has been, she's been shaking and baking. She's been trying to pair up the Duke and Daphne. She's been giving witty comments like, Simon, you need to wear color. This whole thing is already uh, whatever she says. Like she's, she's witty and she's funny. She's a great actress. She has some awesome outfits, but she's been a very shallow character so far, but getting this context and depth to her is very, very nice. And I, I thought this scene did a lot, to, to obviously bring us more into Simon's world, but to bring us more into Lady Danbury's world as well, and just realize that she she helped Simon get over this issue. We know it obviously worked, and that's why they're very, very close, and I really appreciate that the show took the time to, to dive into this and to give us that scene, because I think it was really effective. Surprise, surprise, we are at yet another ball. I really wonder how many balls we're going to go to in this show. I haven't got tired of them yet. I think they're fantastic. I think they're very, very fun. They're well done. So I don't know how many we're going to. I don't really care. My guess at this point must be at least 12 because we're probably at five or six already at this point. Anthony goes into this ball clearly hoping to make it up to Mr. Burbrook and to figure that whole situation out. And Lady Danbury notices and picks up on the fact, I think they just say it out loud, that Daphne and Simon are like, yo, are we going to dance? And Lady Denver is like, Anthony, however shall I refill my glass? <laughs> like, just the the lamest, most, like, just most convenient way to remove Anthony from the situation, which is hilarious. And so Anthony has to go off with Lady Danbury, which allows Simon and Daphne to go and dance. And I think Lady Danbury, again, back-to-back scenes, is an absolute hero. And it is not a pre- she's appreciated in this show, but not enough. I again noted the dancing is very cute and the chemistry is there. And I am buying into this relationship, which is awesome. Anthony, still being a dick, though, tries to get Benedict to go dance with Daphne. And Benedict's like, yo, I'm just enjoying this. Like, what do I have to do this for? And clearly, from Anthony's point of view, it's so he can talk to Daphne and figure out this situation with Burbrook. Anthony and the Duke are uh, conversing over by, I think, over a glass of whiskey, but over by some tables or whatever. They're away from the dance at this point, and Burbrook shows up to talk to... Anthony about the whole situation with Daphne and he does this right in front of the Duke which look I know you've looked into him Anthony but this guy is a freaking moron why on earth would he have this conversation in front of the Duke so he's talking to Anthony about Daphne and whatever Anthony says I'm sure is very dumb I didn't note it down but I'm sure he's saying dumb stuff and that's fine the Duke is interrupting every single point and says like he's very emphatic like he says something along the lines of Right? I don't think you're the expert on what concerns me, Anthony. I won't dignify what he did with words, but yada yada. And then Anthony, who's doing his first good thing, but in a very strange way that I still can't really give him credit for, is Anthony's going through his head. And it's like, oh, surely she must have told me about this whole situation, or she would have told me. And then in my head, I'm like, why would Daphne have told you? The Duke then, being the avatar for the audience, says the same thing. Like, dude, why the fuck would she tell you about this situation? You'd be livid about the whole thing. And you're an ass. Like, you're, why would she tell you this? 
And Anthony jumps from, I've looked into Burbrook. He's amazing. He's perfectly acceptable. He says in the first episode that Daphne should be happy or appreciative or whatever. He says that it's done. He jumps immediately from that to, you are never speaking to Daphne again. So I'm happy he's come around. I'm happy he's listening to the Duke and that he is getting rid of Burbrook because this is ridiculous. What I don't understand is why, like, what prompts him to make that jump? There's no, oh, I'm going to ask Daphne about this. There's no, hey, I should look into this a little more. So you get to see here that his sleuthing skills are actually terrible. In this case, the Duke was telling the truth, and this is the response Anthony should probably have. But from Anthony's point of view, he doesn't actually know that this is what happened. He is just like, the Duke is just saying this. And how does he know the Duke's not just saying this? Because he wants to get with Daphne, right? Maybe he, maybe the Duke's lying to him. I think Anthony needs to do a little more work here. But we're moving in the right direction. We're moving in the right direction. And Anthony's finally doing and saying things that at least the audience can get behind. Daphne picks up on this whole situation. And she, she again takes agency and tells the Duke that he can't assure her of anything and I put good job girlfriend don't let him assure you of anything and so you just get this moment where Daphne is a little bit at odds with the Duke and I like how they're peppering these things in where the Duke and Daphne aren't just all lovey-dovey all the time and perfect you have these moments of tension I really think this whole scene worked really well and Anthony was still an idiot and we got the fuck rid of Burbrook for now and so this scene at the time was fantastic After his humiliation, Burbrook decides, <laughs> against all odds, again, he's not the brightest bulb. He decides he needs to confront the Duke in some sort of tunnel. The Duke says he's going to go take the air. Burbrook decides, hey, I got to go confront this guy in this tunnel where he is taking the air. The first bit of the conversation gives us a little backstory on Burbrook, which I did appreciate. I like characters that are fleshed out where we understand their motivations, what they want, what they're doing, why they're doing it, why should we care? And Burbrook says, look, he says it in a very terrible way, and we're going to get to how rude he is, but he says, like, look, you're a duke. You have land. You have money. You have standing. You have all this stuff, and I have nothing. I need her to have that. If I want to be important, if I want to have the nice big house and I want to have the money and I want to have the standing in the society, I need her. So at least while I don't agree in 2020 or 2021, sorry, it's weird when you're doing this right after a new year. And while I don't agree with that sentiment in the year 2021, at the time, I'm sure that was just how people got they're standing. I think that's a perfectly reasonable take to have for a man in that time that, hey, this is my only shot to go far in society and you're the only thing standing in the way from it and you already have all the things. This isn't competitive. It's not like if I marry Daphne, you don't get to be a duke anymore. So I, I liked that he seemed to have at least a, at for the time, reasonable take on his motivations. Then... Then, 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 he says something about Daphne, which is very unfair and ludicrous. He says that when he is purchasing a horse, he doesn't negotiate with the horse, implying that Daphne is the horse and that she's worth nothing. I put, he's a dick and deserves this beatdown because Simon, from the top rope, just beats the crap out of this guy, punches him in the face over and over and over and over and over again, and he definitely deserves it. Simon here, there's two things I want to bring up. First off, how does he not knock him out? 
How did like, Daphne in the last episode one punched him in the face, and this guy was Dunskis. In this episode, someone we know, because Simon did all the box positions, someone we know is actually good at boxing, punches this guy in the face like at least eight or nine times. I didn't count them. I'm sure it's at least eight or nine. I'm not good at math, whatever. And this guy is able to like get up and leave the situation and keep all his thoughts. At some point, either during or before the beatdown, maybe this is a two-part beatdown, I can't quite remember, but Burbrook mentions his father, Simon's father, and not his own father, and he goes, I know how badly your dad, or I've heard things, again, letting us know most of what happens in this world is through gossip. I know your dad so desperately wanted a son, I know how disappointed he was when his wife couldn't give him one, implying that he knows how disappointed he was with Simon. And this is where Simon goes full off the top rope and just beats the shit out of him, which he deserves. And I was hoping this would be the end of Burbrook. It is not the end of Burbrook, but this was a very satisfying scene to watch Burbrook get the crap beaten out of him. We then move on to some more flashbacks, getting more in-depth, in-detail scenes about how Simon kind of came to be the Duke he is now. In this scene, Lady Danbury has mostly got rid of the stammer, although it still comes and goes, but she has mostly taught him how to get rid of the stammer. He goes to his dad, who doesn't seem to care at all that he's alive. He tells his dad that he's been writing letters, letting him know that he's not dead. You have to keep in mind, this child's like nine years old. And... He's speaking, which is a big deal, and the dad's just not having any of it. He says, like, the Duke of Hastings at the time says, you know, you're my greatest failure. I'm going to do with you what I did with your mother and forget that you ever existed in these halls. And so Lady Danbury has to shepherd has to shepherd um, the young Simon out, and it's just very heartbreaking. You know, this is a kid who's clearly, again, I talked about how traumatized he must be earlier. This is a kid who's clearly tried so hard to overcome this problem. He's almost done it. And during this conversation says, hey, I'm good at writing. I'm good at fencing. I'm good at reading. I'm good at all these other things. The only thing that I'm not great at is is speaking yet. And I'm getting there, right? It's not because he's dumb. It's just because he has a stutter. And the the Duke is just being a complete asshat. And it, it just, it makes you feel so bad and then the scene cuts to simon in real time reading the letters he wrote his father and oh the heartbreak uh, these the letters are sealed the letters are unopened his dad never read them he got dozens of letters from his son letting him know he was alive and he was improving and he was trying to do well and he didn't even read them like that's so heartbreaking both for the young simon in this scene but also for the older Simon in this scene. And I just found myself at the end of it just really emotional. Like this just this whole situation is really, really terrible. Moving on to happier topics, we go and we arrive at a picnic. A picnic that earlier in the episode, the Duke was like, wait, I have to go to a picnic? Like, are you serious? So he, again, much like the original promenade, does not want to be here. The opening shots of this are really well done. It's very cute. Everyone's having a great time. I really like how this this, uh, scene is blocked and shot and how everyone's dressed. And this is another one of those scenes that really kind of bring the show together and help you delve into the world a little bit. The main things that happen is that Penelope and Eloise continue to talk about the pregnancy. They still don't know what's going on. I still think that's very, very funny. Anthony talks to Daphne for a little bit and is genuinely shocked 
that Daphne didn't tell him about the Burbrook situation. He says, did you think me in such little esteem? And she goes, yes, dude, like you suck. Like, yes, I think of you in that low of an esteem. The Duke arrives on horseback, which is again, very sexy and starts promenading with Daphne and Daphne knows what she's doing and has the super sexy, like clever, like button my cuff. Like there's a little cuff link on her glove or something. And then they purposely walk in front of a group of potential suitors. And he like very, very slowly and romantically buttons her cuff up. And again, I am in on these two. Like I'm getting in. And the whole episode is like, oh no, am I falling for it? Am I falling for it? Am I falling for it? Am I going to be in on these two? Am I really going to be super in on these two? But the acting is good. The chemistry is there. The situation is fun. Daphne knows what she's doing here. They have a cute conversation about love and how I can't remember the conversation exactly, but it definitely relates to how Daphne wants love in her life, wants the kind of family that she's always had. And it's just a really, really cute conversation. <laughs> Burbrook shows up on the scene, just battered after the beatdown from the Duke. His face is so funny. The makeup is really, really well done. And he just looks absolutely miserable, but he comes in a little cocksure of himself with a, uh, with a, what's it called? What's it called when you are not confident with a, um, Oh, I can't remember. It's what a blank in your step. A, I can't remember. Anyways, he comes in. I use the word confident. All confident and very sure of himself. He has somehow got a special license for them to marry, which doesn't really make much sense to me. I don't understand this part of the plot. This is meant to be the point where Burbrook is really threatening and he's going to force Daphne to marry him. And I just didn't really understand this point of the plot because earlier in the first episode, they mentioned that you need a contract to get married. So I thought it was a little weird that clearly this contract didn't happen or maybe it did, but he's got a special license to get married in three days and that sucks. And that's meant to be the, the, the big threat to Daphne right now is that Burbrook's on the scene. He's got this license and she's going to have to marry him. I don't understand how this happened or how it works, but it did. And the whole time you just know that it's not going to happen. And so it really undercut the whole emotional aspect of it. Cause the whole time I watched, I was like, Oh, he's, she's not marrying Burbrook. So I didn't really care about it. So maybe I'm missing something that I should get. And maybe that something would make me think this is more threatening overall. That's meant to be the big kind of bad thing that's going to happen in this episode. And just, I knew it wasn't going to come to be. It ends up not coming to be. And so I didn't really, I didn't really vibe with it, but Hey, that's what happens in all of the emotional kind of debriefing that happens. Mama B is really circling back on marriage and says, Hey, I know I spent my whole life and your whole life telling you that marriage is fucking amazing and you should love it. But actually marriage can suck sometimes. It's more about the kids and it's more about the household. And those are the things that will bring you joy, which is a huge circle back on what she's been telling Daphne her whole life. So this whole thing about having to marry Burbrook really, really, really sucks. And they reminisce a little bit about Daphne's dad and the and Mama Bridgerton's. I don't, do we have a name for Mama Bridgerton yet? One day when I find it and when it comes up in the show, I'll call her by her name because I hope she has one. And 
they reminisce about uh, Daphne's dad and her husband and how great that was. And this scene was really effective for me. I'm not. I I know she's not going to marry the or Lord Burbrook, so I don't really care about it from that point of view. But it's nice to have a little bit of mother daughter time reminiscing about someone who they both deeply cared about. Eloise is out on the swings smoking. This is clearly something she's not meant to do. Benedict comes and catches her, and not much happens. Benedict all mentions that he doesn't want anything to do with this whole social scene either, just like Eloise. But my note was like, Eloise, you're smarter than this. If you don't want to get caught smoking on the swings, don't smoke in a public place where your brothers frequently walk around. Like, that was just weird to me that she was shocked that she got caught there, but whatever. Eloise, you're smarter than that. You are smarter than that. Come on. Lady Bridgerton finally goes and hangs out with the queen at tea time. Not much happens other than the queen is kind of like, hey, when Mozart was a young composer, I picked him out to be the best composer ever. And wow, I was right. He's the best composer ever. So I'm sure his family really loves that he's the best composer ever. Definitely trying to draw an illusion or a comparison to Daphne, who she called out as the diamond. Or I guess it's Lady Whistledown who said the diamond of the first water. But she gave Daphne the most gracious remark and how terrible it would be for her family um, if she doesn't marry up to that standard. And the queen the whole time, you get the sense that she just doesn't like being contradicted she doesn't like extending her favor and have that having that favor not be taking advantage of she also is sniffing a lot of snuff they call it snuff in the show what is snuff is it like cocaine like what is she sniffing because she sends the guy out she sends the guy out a because he's a gossip but also because she wants more snuff i don't know what snuff is what is snuff ah mama bridgerton immediately goes in hot with a sick plan to get Burbrook out of the picture. She invites, she invites Mama Burbrook over for lunch. Now, the the mother of Mama Burbrook is perfect. You definitely get the sense that this is the mother of Lord Burbrook. She is, the way this show sets it up is that you just get the sense she she's chewing with her mouth open. She's a little bit annoying. She thinks Burbrook is the greatest thing ever, which I thought was a little relatable. I think most parents think their own kids are the best thing ever, so I'm not going to hold that against her. But Mama Burbrook is genuine or generally a dislikable person where you can see like, oh, I don't like her and I don't like the Burbrook. I just don't like any of the Burbrooks. That's, I think, what you're meant to take from this little lunch but the lunch is there the whole point of the lunch is so the maids of both families can talk in the background and find out all the information they need all the gossip about lord burbrook so that they can tell lady whistledown or start talking to everyone and sure enough they find out that burbrook has a son somewhere with a woman that he's not adequately paying for or supporting and they set off in some weird space and so they spread out she says something like, we're going to do what women do. We talk. And they spread out amongst Grosvenor Square and throughout the streets. And they tell everyone who will listen about this Burbrook situation. They go to the Modiste and tell her that as well. And all these people in the background are like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Did you hear about the Burbrook thing? And then they run off to tell everyone. And you can see how quickly this is going to spread. It's very funny later when Burbrook is in the kind of club that he's in and everyone else is reading the lady whistle down about this situation and <laughs> he just has no idea and he's just sitting there and i really enjoyed this whole thing mama 
Bridgerton is a badass who has a plan, and she's so much smarter than Anthony. She knows so much more than Anthony does about everything, and I really appreciated this scene. I thought it was very funny, very well done, and I really enjoyed the gossiping plan, and it works! Burbrook is out of the picture, and of course, of course Burbrook had something going on. Just of course he did. You don't like him, but you need a reason why, and this is the reason why, and I thought that was effective. Anthony now has a conversation with Mama Bridgerton about Burbrook and says, Woo, it's very convenient that Burbrook's gone. I'm sure it didn't come by chance. Mama Bridgerton says that, like, pretty much insinuates, yes, it's her, her plan and that she knows what she's doing. So if you don't want to do this anymore, I would be very appreciative because I can find Daphne the match that she needs. And I really love the contrast here because they talk about the Duke. And in this scene... I will only I will only defend Anthony in one scene, and it's this one right here. Anthony actually has the right of it. These two characters, while talking about it, flip in your own head, because you know the Duke doesn't want to get married, and you know that Anthony is actually correct about that, and that Mama Bridgerton is actually wrong. And so for, for all of the times Anthony has been wrong this whole show, and for all of the times that Mama Bridgerton has actually been correct, I loved the contrast here where in this conversation, you agree that Mama Bridgerton is smarter and should be doing this. You agree that Anthony sucks. But with the thing they're actually talking about, it's completely flipped. Anthony is actually the one that's correct, and Mama Bridgerton is not. And showing things in that way is a really cool way of letting me sink into the characters a little bit more and adds a little more complexity to what is otherwise a very simple plotline. And I really enjoyed this. We learn that Marina is locked in her bedroom. I wrote, and my only note for this scene was cool. Let's move on to Eloise and Daphne. Eloise is asking Daphne if she's frightened. They have this wonderful conversation about the day Hyacinth was born. I think this is the point where we get the name Hyacinth for the first first time, who is the youngest daughter of the Bridgerton family. Eloise is, is asking... Daphne, if she's terrified of giving birth, like, hey, do you remember what happened to mom? She almost died. She was screaming all night. It was terrible. And uh, Daphne was singing to her to calm her down. I think it was singing. It might have been reading. I can't remember. But this is very good character work. It's adding a lot of depth to Eloise. Now you're kind of understanding she has greater ambitions and is also terrified of this, right? Eloise is getting this depth that we're looking for. And she's really, Colin is still my favorite character from that Penelope moment. But Eloise is probably my favorite character if I had to sit down and rank them. Just because she she knows what she wants and it's not what Daphne wants. But even if it's what she has to have, she's afraid. And adding this extra little bit of emotion really fleshes out her character and she should be afraid she should be afraid that would be terrifying to have your mother almost die and have your your older sister but you guys are still quite young have to kind of guide you through that and she's probably not doing a great job but she's doing her best and as you imagine the situation in in your head she almost has like a little bit of ptsd and i appreciate that she's talking to daphne about this daphne says of course she's terrified of course it's terrifying but it is what she wants it is it is the purpose she has in life and she says mother screamed through the night yes she almost died but in the morning we have hyacinth and isn't the world the greater for that and so I love scenes like this where both characters have a point of view. They are different points of view, but they're both right. They're both just saying their truth to each other. It's a great sister-sister moment. It's one of the first scenes with Daphne and Eloise 
that's emotional and affecting where they're actually being sisters and they're not just being combative. And I absolutely loved it. I just feel I just feel bad for Eloise in this situation, but I also think Daphne's correct and they're they're both correct with their opinions. They both have a different direction they want to go to in life. And Eloise sums it up by saying, right, like it must be exhausting the game of pretend you always have to play and then leaves and it's just oh, such a good scene. If that scene, if if the backstory of the Duke and that Eloise and Daphne scene was the only things in this episode, this would be like a nine out of ten episode. Like it's so, so good. We go to more balls with the Duke. There are feathers this time. It's a really interesting opening shot. You know, they're trying different ways to keep these balls and these dances and these picnics interesting. So the opening shots usually do something different than all the previous opening shots. I was a little upset we didn't get any covers in this episode because we got the Ariana Grande cover in the last one. So I was hoping we'd get one here as well, but we didn't. And that's okay. Or at least one that I didn't recognize. Maybe you guys picked up on something. I'm not going to Google it. I'm only going to pick it up if I pick it up. And... There are feathers that that grace the screen at the beginning here, and that was very funny to just kind of change up the way we are introduced to this dance. Daphne here is kind of moving the goalposts a bit. I think Daphne is being a little bit unreasonable with the Duke. She's saying like, oh, I know we started this as a ruse, but now it's about my entire life. Not only do I need to find a husband out of this, but it needs to be perfect. It needs to be the best person who's going to have lots of kids, who's going to be very kind, who's going to be, we're going to marry for love. And I think all of these conditions were implied earlier, but I think she's kind of moving the goalposts on the Duke here. And they already negotiated. They already had that whole negotiation scene about the balls and the picnics and the flowers and how expensive they need to be. So I'm wondering if this is going to be a point of contention here because Daphne comes into this dance explaining to the Duke that not only is this just a ruse um, to find a husband, but now it's a ruse for, for her entire life. And it's it's... I think it's the same thing, but the way she makes it sound is that she is definitely moving the goalposts. I put in my notes, the chemistry is working the whole time. I thought they were going to kiss. Fuck, am I falling into the show? No, 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 no. So the whole time they're having this conversation, it's very cute. It's very romantic. I am falling for these guys as characters. The Duke looks pissed off because Daphne goes to dance with others to find all these other suitors. Lady Danbury knows that something is up because, of course, after all we've learned this episode, she understands the Duke better than everybody. And as he dismisses that there's a problem, he stammers again in the present time. It's a really good bookend. It's a really good way to bring the the beginning of the show back to the end. And they talk about the stam or he stammers. They don't talk about it, but he's trying to say that he's totally fine. Of course, there's nothing wrong with Daphne dancing with other people. And I thought that was very cute. It was very effective. It was very emotional. It, it, it makes you believe and allows you to believe that the Duke hasn't forgot about all these emotional traumas. Right, and this is before the last scene, which is incredible. But you know, you can tell from just this little stutter that it's still there. He still thinks about it. He still has to fight it. He still has to work every day to be able to speak effectively. And I just love that character development from the Duke side. And you can't overuse it. I really hope he doesn't just start stuttering all the time. But when it's there, and it's there every once in a while, and it really helps flesh out the character and it really made me feel for the duke in this situation and i thought it was a great use of bringing the stutter back to help add the emotion and the impact to that scene and finally we have the absolute whopper of a scene at the end where we're back in what i'm assuming is two weeks ish 
before the show starts. It's the present time. The Duke's father is dying, right? Or the, the Duke of Hastings is dying. Simon, who's about to be the Duke once his father dies, comes into the room where he's dying on his deathbed. His heart is failing. And for some reason, he says that he's happy to see Simon and that his heart swells with pride, even though it's failing. So it leads me to believe that at some point between the last flashback back we got between them, which is when... I want to say Simon was about 9 or 10. He must be about 25 now, 25 to 30. I don't know how old. The actor must be close to 30. I don't know how old the Duke is meant to be as a character, so could be anything. But we're led to believe this is at least a decade has gone by. So something has happened, or maybe the, the dad is just having, like, on-your-deathbed revelations about life that he wished he'd done things differently. We are not really sure. I don't really know. Maybe you picked up on it a little bit differently. But the Duke is laying it down. The Duke goes in and he goes, I want you to hear one thing. He uses the words, you fucking monster, which is amazing for this guy who totally deserves it. He goes, I'm never going to marry. I'm never going to have kids. And he says, listen close, you fucking monster. Oh, my God. But in my notes, I put, presumably this is right before the show began. And the only reason, the only thing that I'm taking from this scene that I want to keep an eye on is that... This vow, this promise, does the dad deserve it? Yes, the dad deserves all the scorn and ridicule. And and the Duke is saying, like, this guy's heart's failing. And the Duke that we know is yelling at his father, like, speak, speak. And it's it's circling back to all the times that his father had told him to speak. Oh, it's so good. I got really emotional during this scene. It's easily the best scene of the whole show so far. Just absolutely incredible work. The only thing I'm concerned about coming out of this scene is that the Duke's vow is earned. You understand why the Duke goes into this last conversation with his dad and says, I'm never going to marry. I'm never going to have kids. I don't want this line. You ruined it. You're terrible. You're a fucking monster. I am like just he is saying all the things that he knows will piss his dad off. Right, These are the worst things this dying monster could hear, and those are the things he's choosing to say. The only thing that concerns me is this vow he's made to himself is only a month old, two months old. So it's weird to me that he's sticking so heavily to his guns, at least so far. We know that Daphne and the Duke have to end up together, so maybe he backs down a little bit. But it is interesting to me that he is sticking so heavily to his guns about not having kids and not... Um, furthering the line and not getting married. And maybe this was something he thought about for a very, very long time. So he just made the vow out loud a few weeks before the show timeline starts. But maybe he's been saying this to himself for years. We don't really know. But I'm a little bit worried that, or not even worried about it. This is a character, right? Maybe the character thinks differently than I, that he's not allowing himself to be happy. He meets Daphne. It's clear he at least likes Daphne. He says something funny, like, "If, if you had to be my wife, if I did have to marry, at least you would be the least terrible option, which is which is cute and funny. But it's it's a little bit strange to me that a person would make this vow and then within a month like meet somebody who they could genuinely have a nice and kind life with. And maybe it doesn't worry me, but maybe it just saddens me that someone who's clearly nice and clearly kind and clearly a decent person is willing to deny themselves their own happiness just to spite their, their dad who is now dead. And so that... 
That was a little bit weird for me. Not in a way that I didn't like it. I actually really loved it, but just in a way that I thought about it a lot. And I'm going to be thinking about it a lot as we go forward in the show to see how the Duke, how seriously he takes this promise of not marrying and not having kids and how, how much that vow comes into play. And that is it for the deep dive of season one, episode two of Bridgerton entitled Shock and Delight. What a deep dive it is. The recording is almost an hour and a half long, so we're going at least 10 or 20 minutes over the first episode. But I love doing these deep dives, and I hope you enjoy doing these deep dives. If you would like to let me know what you thought about this episode of Bridgerton, you can email letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com. If you would like to come hang out with me on Twitter, you can go to at letsdivedeep on Twitter. That's also where I'll be posting the podcast after we do Bridgerton. We're going to be doing different TV shows in different feeds, so if you want to know what we'll be doing next after Bridgerton, come and hang out on Twitter. I'd love to see you. Otherwise, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive of Bridgerton, and I will see you back in just a couple of days so we can dive deep into Season 1, Episode 3. Cheers, everyone, and we will see you next time.